Welcome to Kindreds, a podcast for soul sisters. I'm Ashley Peterson. And I'm Katie Zay. We're kindred spirits talking all things faith, feminism, and friendship from our homes in the South. Hey, y'all. It's Katie. I'm really excited about today's show. But before we get into that, I wanted to tell you about something that happened earlier this week. Ashley and I were approached by the producer of another podcast to see if we would advertise one of their new podcasts on Kindreds. We talked it over and decided to turn the money down. It wasn't the right fit for the Kindreds audience and what we're trying to create here in our conversations about faith and feminism and friendship. So we said no. And that's because we want to keep the integrity of our show and make sure our content is exactly what you all want to be listening to. So that brings me to the request that we've been making over the last couple of episodes to please consider pledging your support for our podcast on our Patreon page. It's very, very easy to do. All you have to do is visit patreon.com slash kindreds and click become a patron. You can pledge at any level, a dollar, $3 or $5 a month to help us cover the cost of creating the show. We're about halfway to our monthly goal. We'd love your help in meeting that. Plus, if you pledge $3 or more, you'll get awesome bonus content over on our private Facebook group just for our patrons. Please visit patreon.com slash kindreds to pledge today. I am so excited to have Cindy Brandt as my guest co-host this episode. Cindy and I met about two years ago at the Festival of Faith and Writing, and I instantly felt a connection with her, definitely a kindred spirit. Cindy is the author of an upcoming book on parenting from a progressive Christian perspective, which I can't wait to read. Her website is cindywords.com, where she blogs about faith and culture and parenting. She's the founder of the Raising Children Unfundamentalist Facebook group, which has over 11,000 members last time I checked. Cindy lives in Taiwan, which was a little challenging as I tried to navigate our, our differences in time zones. So we're record, I'm recording in the evening and Cindy's recording in the morning. So I'm glad we figured that out. Um, and she describes herself as a social justice Christian and a feminist more interested in being evangelized than evangelizing. Cindy, welcome to Kindreds. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I've been really looking forward to this conversation and yeah, I'm excited to be here. Me too. We're really glad to have you. I would love to start with that last part of your bio, which I find so fascinating. When you say that you're more interested in being evangelized than evangelizing, what do you mean by that? Well, that's actually a reference to um, one of the pieces I wrote a few years ago called um, How I Kissed Evangelism Goodbye, which was a riff of um, How I Kissed Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. Um, but it was a piece actually talking about not so much evangelizing, but the posture that we have entering into conversations with people. So like, I think there's always two, two ways that you can enter into conversation. One is with an agenda and the other is a willingness, a curiosity and openness to learn from the other person and to listen well. So it was really a piece about listening um, and I just believe that this could radically change the world in so many ways. If we are just able to listen well, I feel like it's needed. I feel like people are lonely and longing to be heard. 
Um, and so I just think that that's the distinction that, um, that can help us uh, adjust our attitude and our posture if we approach every conversation with a desire to be evangelized instead of evangelizing whatever it is that we're trying to evangelize. I love that. Coming into conversation with the spirit of receptiveness and being open and willing to hear someone else's perspective and how it might inform your own in a different way. And I know that you personally have a really interesting faith journey where I'm sure being evangelized by others was a, was a big part because you talk about you know, being unfundamentalist in the way that you right. live your life and how you parent and how you write. So what does uh-huh. being unfundamentalist mean to you? How did you get to a place of describing yourself as unfundamentalist? Um, yeah, so I don't, I think that a better term to describe who I am as a person of faith is faith shifting. Like I am a person who has traveled a very distinct path. Um, as, as a faith person, I grew up conservative evangelical and have evolved, grown, changed my minds on several important issues and kind of moving on the theological spectrum from the right to the left. And so I'm still in transition. I think we all are. Um, and so I think faith shifting is probably a more poignant term to describe my faith. Um, I, I came up with unfundamentalists when I started writing about parenting, which I think we'll talk about later. But um, it was just, I feel like unfundamentalists, it's it's kind of a negative term, right? It's unsomething. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was a good way for me to describe the parenting method that I wanted to advocate because I wanted to talk about gentle parenting. Some people say gentle parenting or peaceful parenting, but a way that honors a child's agency, um, which I feel like is very opposite of fundamentalist um, parenting, which is hierarchical, authoritarian, um, an emphasis on control. So I felt like it was a good term to capture all of those things. Like we are adamantly against control. Um, but it, it also described me as a parent and who I am and, and sort of capture a little bit of the spirit of my faith trajectory, moving from fundamentalist to against those kinds of teachings. So, um, yeah, I mean, the funny thing about this is I, I came up with it. I really came up with it on my own, but um, I thought I was so clever, you know, and punny <laughs> until I found out that that there actually already is a, a rather large blog and presence called Unfundamentalist Christians. And so I was able to connect with them, and they've just welcomed me and um, allowed me to just connect with them and, and work with them to share a message of unfundamentalism. So that's been, that's been really good too. Oh, that's a great response from them that they said, Oh, well, we think it's great that on your own, you came to this framing and we'd love for you to be part of our community. I didn't know that part of that story. So that's a, yeah, that's a I'm really, really great... grateful. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I was just thinking about, you know, your description of parenting and I imagine that Maybe there are times when you're evangelized by your children, learning from them and being receptive to what they have to teach you and not just use the parent teaching them. Yes, I love that. I love that. Being evangelized by my kids. That's true. That's really good. I know I, I feel like I learn a lot just from 
watching my daughter explore the world and regaining some of the ordinary joy that and wonder that she has that I have a hard time otherwise tapping into. I think that's probably the primary way that she's teaching me that, but I imagine she'll be teaching me more as she grows up. Yeah, I think it's very empowering for children to know that they can impact you just as much as you can impact them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know when my kids introduce me to a TV show or a song that I end up actually genuinely liking, I know it makes them feel really special. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, I think this idea of being evangelized is just uh, being willing to extend respect and autonomy to the other person, which I also believe is really important in parenting. Mm. Well, I love that. So another part of your description, self-description is that you consider yourself a feminist, which of course we love on this show because we talk about faith and feminism and friendship. So when did you consider first consider yourself a feminist and how does feminism shape your faith now? So feminism, that's that's a really complicated question, right? It's a loaded word, and mm-hmm. I applaud you for um, being willing to host a podcast that explores these issues because it's certainly a nuanced conversation. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it is complicated because I don't think I identified as a feminist, um, but I, 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 was a, I grew up fairly confident just by personality, Um, so I was a confident girl and I had the audacity to believe that I was just as smart. I could just as capable and, um, and that I was equal to boys and the, you know, my peers that are boys and, and men. Um, and so I think that consciously I was always a feminist. I believed in equality, but, um, it's only in looking back at my childhood um, now that I've been able to unpack a lot of the sexism that I actually internalize as a girl. Um, so for instance, my mom was a strong woman and she, um, yeah, she taught me to be strong. She modeled strength and yet she is a product of her time and her culture. And so she would tell me things like, um, all the the best jobs in the world are available to men. They're occupied by men. And for her, it meant that it was because they deserved it, that the men deserved these positions, top positions. So, I, I mean, I, I believe that. I think I internalized that. And, um, and, of course, these messages came from everywhere in culture. But then also within the church and the Christian environment I was in, they reinforced that by... Um, you know, this, these examples of godliness and what it means to be a godly woman was to, to marry and to raise your children and to support your husband and to allow your husband to be the leader of your faith. Um, and I, I think I definitely internalize that as well. Um, so it, it's, it was a process for me to unveil and unpack those layers and I think it was um, 
the point that I realized how much I had internalized and how much I had to name those things that are in my life that have become part of my identity, I think that was when I started to call myself a feminist because I realized the importance of resisting it and calling it out and trying to live another way. Um, so maybe uh, graduate school, early adulthood was when I began identifying as a feminist. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I can identify with your childhood of being a strong girl, a confident, Mm -hmm. strong girl, and the cognitive dissonance between that and people maybe affirming your, your strength as a girl and then what the messages that you got from church about what it meant to be a quote unquote godly woman was right. to be, you know, submissive or to have your identity tied to your husband. So it sounds like it was a complementarianism yes. theology that you had. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I, I think, you know, a lot of, I was always, people always said I was too much. People always felt intimidated by me oh, and all those things. Yeah, I'm, I'm learning to uh, embrace now as a feminist. Um, yeah, I just saw a meme the other day that said, uh, people, um, you are not intimidating. People are intimidated. There's a difference, mm-hmm. which I really like that. I was like, oh, yeah, that was healing for me because mm-hmm. I think I think all my life I felt bad about being intimidating. Like, what did I do? How was I too much? How did I scare people off? Um, but there is a difference between them being intimidated than me being intimidating because I don't feel like I'm intimidating. I'm just being myself. Right. Right. And so what are you supposed to do to try to change someone else's reaction to how you just naturally are. Um, we actually exactly. did our very first episode, episode one about the word bossy. And we got into yes. a good conversation, very similar to the one that you and I are having about that word intimidating. Um, because both mm. Ashley and I got that as well from, yeah. especially from men, um, right. we dated in early adulthood. Mm. Yeah. Well, and what you often do is you end up trying to minimize yourself. You cut yourself down. You try to be less of yourself Mm -hmm. so that people won't have those reactions. So I think being feminist is to let people manage their own emotions of how they feel. And yeah, just let them do that. (laughs) I like that. My definition of feminism had not involved of the emotional labor piece, but I think I'm going to add it in after what you just said, because it's really good. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about kind of straddling these different cultures um, of the East and the West. You are Taiwanese and you, you live in Taiwan now, which we talked about at the beginning, but you went to American schools and you married um, a man from Colorado, and now you're raising two kids who straddle these different cultures. Um, so what are some of those challenges you face in communicating about your intersections of um, these different backgrounds and identity in your writing and in your life more generally. Right. I, I actually started as a writer. I started writing about cultural issues. Um, I think a lot of times as writers, artists, activists, we 
we do the things that we have to do, right? Like I felt um, a need, I felt compelled to work through these issues because they, it, it, was, a re- it was a wrestling within me. Um, I do have a complicated background. I call myself a third culture kid because mm-hmm. I have these intersecting cultures within me because of my background. Um, and I struggled with identity. Like who am I? Who do I belong to? How am I supposed to behave? I have these paradoxical conflicting influences in my life. And so I did start writing about it um, and it was helpful. But um, as it sort of coincided with my faith evolution, um, I began to uh, realize that I I began to be comfortable with, with gray areas, with complexity, right? Um, so with my faith, I, I needed to let go of the certainty of doctrine and orthodoxy because I realized how it was hurting people. And so I think, you know, within that, I began to be okay with the complexities of my culture. In fact, I um, began to embrace it as a positive thing in my life because I'm able to always see things from an outsider perspective, you know, I mean, the negative part of that is I kind of feel uh, like a weirdo or a loner, like I don't belong anywhere. But the upside is I am able to bring an outsider perspective to the things I write about. So I think now my audience is mostly Americans and I'm not American um, and I'm able to approach these issues um, with the privilege of not getting entangled in some of the culture war. So for instance, the, the, the kind of the issue I'm really looking at is the gun culture, gun reform thing. I mean, for most of the world, it is absolutely ridiculous, mm-hmm. this gun culture thing that's going on in America. Like, we don't understand why uh, Americans, so many Americans hold on to the importance of guns, the Second Amendment, and all these things. And so I think that that allows me to write with kind of clearer eyes um, that's a little bit distance from the, um, yeah, just the passion of culture wars. And so I think that's helpful. Um, so I, I feel like I've let go of a lot of my anxieties about being a third culture person and just began to embrace it as a positive influence in my life. And it's, I do sometimes still feel alienated because I don't quite fit in anywhere. Um, But that's just life, right? Sometimes you struggle. Sometimes you just try to see the good and see how it can empower um, me to do the work that I need to do. And I hope that with my children that I can impart some of this wisdom that I've learned through my life experience. Um, although just recently I have been thinking about, because my children, I'm Asian and my husband is white, so my children are biracial. Um, and so, yeah, just the importance of talking to them about their biracial identity and how that's going to impact um, the way that they move about in the world. So, yeah, complicated, but. um... And is that experience of being biracial, how is how is that perceived differently when you're living in Taiwan? I assume you travel back to the U.S. sometimes. So does that feel different depending on where you are? Yeah, it's it's definitely different. And, And even within America, 
Uh, my daughter was born in LA in Pasadena and there there's a huge demographic of biracial children um, at the time. She's 15 years old now so I would imagine it's even more and that more and more there are multiracial, interracial families. Um, but yeah, if we're in Colorado, we're in a place where it's mostly white people, they, I think they definitely identify more as Asians. They'll say that. They'll say, I'm Asian, mm. um, even though they're biracial. And, um, and here in Taiwan, people ha- there's some internalized sex, uh, racism here in Taiwan. Uh, there's white supremacy is everywhere. So um, people generally think of Caucasians as beautiful and they think that biracial children are beautiful. So my kids heard that growing up. I mean, even now they'll hear all the time that they're beautiful because they're biracial, um, which is problematic. Mm-hmm. And I, I try to address that with them, um, explaining why it is that people say that and help them be able to navigate um, those attitudes that I know that they uh, they're internalizing. Wow. Well, I'm grateful for your thoughtfulness and intentionality around all of this, which I want to get more into. We've talked some about parenting already in our conversation, but I want to turn to that community that you've created online for parents in the un- uh, raising children unfundamentalist. So what, what inspired you to create that community and I mean it's it's grown so much um I would just love to hear what you think what is it that's resonating so much with the people who come and are part of that community um yeah so I I started to write about parenting because well again like I said before, you start writing the things that you're wrestling with, right? And I was, like I said, a faith shifter. So faith shifting is, I I try even, unless you are going through the same thing or have gone through the same thing, it's hard to describe what it's like to faith shift because it's so much more than just changing your mind about an issue. When you change your faith, you are having to shed an identity and oftentimes a community and you're literally turning your life upside down. And that comes with a lot of anxiety. Um, and I was experiencing that I was faith shifting and dealing with all this internal turmoil. And at the same time, parenting children, which is a huge job in and of itself. And, and, um, and faith, raising our children in faith, which is basically uh, encapsulating all your values, um, is a huge aspect of child rearing. And so I just felt like, wow, this is a really um, big thing that's happening in my life. And there doesn't seem to be a place to talk about it. And that's when I started writing about it. And um, but since I've written about it, I've, I've thought more about why there's such a vacuum. Like there are not a lot of progressive Christian spaces that talk about parenting. And there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first of all, if you, I don't, I'm, I'm sure you've noticed as um, female podcasters, I don't know if you identify as progressive Christian, but kind of in that similar space that it is a place that is filled with mostly white men. Yes. 
<laughs> so a lot of the voices that are the loudest that you know there are so many podcasts I can't count how many podcasts that are progressive Christian that are hosted by two white men mm-hmm. um, and so that's that's the those are the people that's speaking the loudest and white men aren't necessarily thinking about parenting um, I don't know if that's fair to say but that's I, I just think that that's not a priority um, because of well because of sexism <laughs> um, because the um, yeah it's still prevalent that the woman is the the you know the main child rearing person and so it's not a main concern for them and then although there have been lots of wonderful women bloggers and thought leaders that have been rising in the progressive Christian space it's they're not I think that they're a little bit afraid to talk about parenting and motherhood because they risk not being taken seriously like they'll be called a mommy blogger which of course, there's nothing wrong with mommy bloggers, but there's this association with with mommy bloggers only being concerned with crafts and um, cooking and household chores and not engaging in serious topics of the day, not talking about politics, not talking about culture and all those things. And so I think that there's a fear of speaking about parenting, um, even from the women who are in those spaces so that's why I think I think this is why it's resonating because I think that we want to be unapologetically progressive Christian in in RCU, um, and yet we want to talk about raising children because it's an incredibly important part of our lives and um, a, a huge aspect of um, our communities. It's the right the building. <laughs> unit of communities is our children and our families. Um, and yeah, it's just the parenting spaces are so largely occupied by conservative parenting literature um, that there is a vacuum of progressive ideas, progressive ways of thinking and how to raise our children in a faith that's real, that's not hierarchical, that matters in a relevant way to our families and our communities. Well, with 11,000 plus members, you've clearly created something that a lot of people were looking for or needed and didn't know they needed it. Um, And so for all of you listening, we'll make sure to link to that. It's a great community. And one of the places on the internet where, from what I see, people are very thoughtful. There's a lot of constructive conversation that happens um, that's done really, really well. So we'll make sure. Right. I, I really appreciate the people in there. Like, like I said, I want to be evangelized. So I approach the conversations wanting to learn from them, even though I started and lead the community. It's like I learn so much from, from them every day. And um, I really uh, appreciate how much they are a part of my process of writing my book as well. I feel like I engage in the ideas and that really impacts the things that I write in the book that I'm working on. So I'm very thankful and shout out to my RCU people. Thank you for being awesome. Are we allowed to ask you about the book? Yeah, definitely. Where are you in the process? 
Um, I am, I just finished editing kind of the major content edits. Um, I just submit, submitted that to my editor. It's, it was so hard. I know everyone loves to complain about writing books, so I, I don't want to be cliche, but um, I, I think that especially as a faith shifting person, um, it's very hard to write a book because I wrote the first manuscript maybe a year and a half ago. And looking back at what I have written, like I really cringed. I'm like, I can't believe I wrote that. I've changed so much even since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah. to be revising my own words is kind of painful because, yeah. you you know, I don't want to deny who I was. That's who I was back then. But yet it's totally not where I am anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And then... Um, yeah, so it, it's such a balance because I want to honor who I was. And I also think that people will resonate with the words that I wrote um, being who I was. But at the same time, I want to have integrity and present and tell the truth of um, how I think. And so, yeah, it's just so complicated. I'm learning a lot and um, I'm excited to share my work with the world. I really appreciate that. I'm in a very similar position as you. I'm going through the major edits of my draft of my book that I probably wrote two years ago or started two Mm. years ago. And I feel very similarly. It feels like it was a different time um, in in my life, in the world, uh, how I was feeling about my faith and parenting was very different. And so... Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to have this longer piece of writing to reflect back on and think, wow, you know, that's where I was at that time. It's, it's almost like a, a journal, um, yeah. the one that you're going to open up to the world in a different I way. know. And it's to scary. think that five years from now, I'll probably read my book now and feel, <laughs> <laughs> feel cringy. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I think we just have to, uh, I think people understand, right? The world keeps moving uh, right. even after the books are printed and the words are printed. Um, right. It's a snapshot. So. It's a snapshot right. in time. Yeah. Well, I wanted yeah. to ask you one last question uh, okay. that's more practical for some of our listeners who are struggling when they think about parenting and faith. Um, there are folks who you know, are trying to figure out if they're going to raise their children, their child in a faith community. Maybe they're struggling to find a place that feels like a good fit for them theologically. Um, right. but they also worry about not exposing their children to a structured faith community at the same time. So do you have any advice that you would give to parents who are trying to find their people and want to raise their children with their faith values, but they're having a hard time finding the right place. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that this is not just a parenting dilemma. I think this is a a palpable anxiety that's felt by a lot of people right now in this generation of, of change, because I think there are a whole generation of people who are becoming disillusioned with institutionalized religion And this isn't just the sense, this is reflected in actual statistics and surveys done by Pew Research showing that there is a demographic of people who are leaving church. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that for those of us who are parents, uh, there's that additional fear that if 
you know, this, the way that it was always done, taking your kids to Sunday school and taking them to VBS and doing Bible studies and potlucks, like that was the way it was done. And there was a security and a comfort in that knowing that you're giving your child good things. And now that people are losing that, um, it just feels very unstable and they are afraid of how it's going to influence their children. And um, I just want to validate that fear because um, it, it is it is real. I feel I think that the children um, do feel an, an instability. They feel that they their parents are not sure of what um, of what they believe, and um, I think that. Uh, yeah, that, that there is this instability, um, this shift, and we're collectively going through that. And, um, and also, I think that the children of today, because of the access that they have to information, um, they know, they are aware more than ever of the things that are happening in, in our world and all the global crises and the tragedies that happen. And it makes them feel a need for... A spiritual grounding. They they are looking for that, um, and so I, I feel like um, I feel like what what is more important is for us to honor our children's natural spiritual autonomy. Um, that's that's kind of the main thing, right? Um, and we can do that by validating, by hearing their concerns, by developing their natural um, spirituality. And cultivating that. And I think that we don't, we can do that by taking them to church. But for those of us who maybe bear spiritual wounds, or maybe it could be difficult for them to do that, it's okay if you don't. I mean, if you find a church that supports your goals of being able to honor your child's spiritual autonomy, then that's great. Um, uh, But for those of us who don't, there are, I mean, God is so much bigger than the institutional religion. And so if you can find it through spending time in nature or if you can do secular family rituals, there's art, there's literature, um, there's a thousand ways for us to cultivate and nurture our children's spirituality. Um, And so I just would encourage parents to kind of keep the main thing the main thing. The, The main thing is to honor our children's natural spirituality um, and finding a good church home and a good church community is the tool, um, is one tool to do that. And so to not stress out so much over um, whether or not you can find a right one or a good one, you can always change churches um, and, and you can always um, um, be, be an impact on the church that you're going to as well and to not I don't know, be so concerned about whether or not this church is the right one for you. Um, so I don't know. Does that make sense? Am I making no, sense? That's good. I think <clears throat> honoring your children's natural spirituality is a really beautiful way of thinking about it, that um, we just have to kind of follow where that resonates with them, and it could take all different forms, and, and to be open and receptive to the different ways that we can nurture spiritual values or spiritual life in our kids. So I think that'll be very encouraging for some of our parents who are listening and struggling. So thank you with that. This is Yeah, great. and I, I think it's I think it's important to um 
I think it's important for churches to honor that as well, to allow the children's spirituality to impact the way they do things in the church. So I think ideally um, you want a church that has that same philosophy of honoring children's spiritual agency. Right. It goes back to the, the mutuality and rather than um, seeing children as, as submissive that they're, they're teachers as well, that we can learn from them uh, and how they experience their spirituality. It's a great teaching tool for us too, as grownups. Right. Well, thank you for that. This has been a great conversation. I want to shift over to a segment we always do about things that we're reading and listening to. And I know, Cindy, that you had a book that you've recently read and reviewed that you wanted to share with us. Yes, it's a book called Raising White Kids by Jennifer Harvey. Um, I find that it's, it's hard to talk about white kids because when we talk about Um, racism, sometimes it could feel a little little bit like bashing white people. And, um, and sometimes it's necessary, like, I don't want to cater to white fragility, Mm -hmm. I want to be able to speak truth to the way white people have perpetuated oppression um, till this day. Um, But when it comes to talking about kids, it gets more complicated, because they're just children, they're innocent. And I also want to honor children's agency and um, and treat them with gentleness. And so how do we talk to white kids about who they are as white children? I think um, Jennifer Harvey calls in her book, calls it a vexed location, which I thought was really mm-hmm. apt. Um, it is a vexed location. And so I'm really thankful for the guidance that she gives, especially as a white woman herself, because I think sometimes it's easier for white people to to talk to other white people about white supremacy. And so for her to have written a book about her family story, about how she's raising her kids um, as white kids, is is really a much needed tool in this world and she does a fantastic job she has done her homework of listening to people of color and um it's it's empathetic it's gentle on the parents i think the way she wrote it is very accessible um but at the same time it does not shy away from hard truths and so it's also hard to read because it will require you to do the work of anti-racism as you raise white kids. So I highly recommend it. Um, So check it out. I did write a review on it, and I think hopefully you'll link to it in show notes. Absolutely. We'll put a link to to your review in the show notes. And again, that's Jennifer Harvey's Raising White Kids. And that is on my reading list. So thanks for sharing about it. Yeah, let me know what you think. I will. I will. I was... Uh, looking at some podcasts that we could that we could lift up that have to do with parenting and raising kids, and I found this really great one called "Fair of the Free Child," hosted by Akila Richards, who is an advocate for the unschooling movement, um, which focuses more on unconventional in the world learning experiences rather than being you know in an institution. Um, which mm-hmm. is especially important for children of color, um, whom, sh- as she says, live in a world that tends to diminish, dehumanize, and disappear them. So Her she's pod- a, a person of color herself? Yes. Yes, she is. Okay. I, I believe she identifies as black. Um, okay. 
So our podcast guests include experts of color from all kinds of different fields, doulas, activists, entrepreneurs, healers, all kinds of folks. And they're exploring this concept of of self-directed education, not just for young people, but for adults too. So it's really interesting framing. Um, You can find more information on her website, akilarichards.com. And of course, we'll link to that in the show notes. I'm excited to check that out. I I really appreciate the unschooling movement. I feel like there's so much we can learn from them. Have you have you watched the movie Captain Fantastic? I haven't. Yeah, so that's another movie that I think is is an unschooling movie. Um, it's played by Viggo Mortensen. But yeah, sorry, you can cut this out if you want. I don't mean to add another <laughs> thing no, to recommend in this section. No, that's good. I think people enjoy, you know, different resources and some people would rather, you know, watch a movie sometimes than yes. read a book. So we'll definitely link it's to that It's a really too. interesting movie. Oh, great. And you know what? I feel like we are so out of the loop with movies since we have a three-year-old. Like we just haven't consumed movies regularly. Right. You're in the season. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I remember that. Uh-huh. Except for, you know, My Little Pony. Um, so we'll, <laughs> we'll link to that too and I'll check it out for sure. Cool. All right. So we want to end our show with one of my favorite parts, which is our kindreds of the moment. And one of the benefits of becoming a supporter on our Patreon site is that if you, I believe if you do the $5 or $7 or more, I'll have to look it up, you get to nominate our kindreds of the moment. So this episode's kindred of the moment comes from our patron, Sarah M. And she wanted to nominate the U.S. women's hockey team, who recently won the Olympic gold medal But even more importantly than that, they fought for and won equal treatment to the U.S. men's hockey team. They had been battling for over a year, challenging USA Hockey to provide them with the same equipment, staff, per diems, publicity, and travel as their male colleagues, or they threatened to boycott the games entirely, which is just awesome. Before they challenged this, uh, the women were making $6,000 a year every four years. So that's 1500 a year to participate in the Olympics. Um, so they fought and won that battle and they are now promised to receive up to $70,000 each year equivalent to what the men are making. So we wow, want to look that's them amazing as yeah, amazing trailblazers, you know, demanding what, what is rightfully theirs. So way to go. Um, I want to thank, yeah, yay. I want to thank you, Cindy, for being on Kindred's this week. It was a great conversation, and I know folks are going to be looking forward to following up with you after and joining all of the great online communities that you've created for parents and beyond. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, kindredspodcast.com. That's kindreds with an S. Or you can send us an email at team at kindredspodcast.com. You can also follow me, Katie, on Twitter at Katie Zay. That's Katie with an E-Y-Z-E-H. Please send us your thoughts, ideas, and questions. We'd love to hear from you. 